Our Old Testament scripture reading this morning will come to us from Psalm 112, but I uh, ask that you turn with me in your hymnals to page 826 as we um, do a responsive reading of this psalm. It's a wonderful psalm. It's a psalm that extols the righteous man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives freely to those who are in need and speaks of those who are in Christ and our righteousness and the call to give to those in need as well. Page 826 in your hymnal, I'll read the words in the regular print and ask that we respond corporately together in the bold. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous man will be remembered forever. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longing of the wicked will come to nothing. Now I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles for our New Testament reading to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Finally, after six months, we've made it through Matthew chapter 5. So only two more chapters to go in the Sermon on the Mount before we make it to another 20-some-odd chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's word. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Uh, our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do come before your word this morning asking that you would instruct us in the path of righteousness for your namesake. We pray that you would lead us in your righteousness for your namesake. By the power of your spirit, we confess that these things that you say are too deep and too wonderful for us, though they are spoken clearly on account of our own finitude and sin. We could not understand them properly unless your spirit were to open our eyes. And so we pray that your spirit would be at work through the preaching of the word this morning, uh, that you would attune our hearts and ears to hear our Savior speak from heaven, that we might grow in grace, 
that we might be reminded of our duties, and that we might know more fully the depth, and the height, and the length, and the breadth of the riches of the love of God that is found given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's somewhat fascinating how the public these days seems to fixate on modern philanthropists. It might be Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos, men who uh, by um, any standard are wealthy men, perhaps among the wealthiest men in the world, perhaps among the wealthiest men in the history of the human race living now in this day and age. Men who it seems like whenever they give to charity, they give away to charity in the millions. And yet, this is not a bad thing. In fact, I would say that if anyone here is a secret billionaire and you're wanting to give millions of dollars to somebody, might I raise my hand uh, and offer my humble services to your generosity? What I do think is interesting is that when these men give, there always seems to be some sort of press conference, some type of announcement uh, that such money has been given, even though from our vantage point, it seems like a lot. From their vantage point, it is just a drop in the bucket. We see in our passage this morning that our Savior addresses the matter of giving, this matter of acts of charity, but what I'd like us to consider here, as we find not only here but elsewhere, is that Jesus' concern is not regarding how much one gives, as though the one who is able to give the cool million is in better with God than the one who is able to give only three dollars. Rather, I would like us to focus where Jesus places the accent, where his concern is not on how much one gives, but on the motive and the manner of one's giving. In other words, why is it that we give? Why is it that you give? And how do you give? I think this makes sense because for the past several weeks, we have heard Jesus hammer home this particular truth, that God requires a righteousness that superabounds over that superficial kind of righteousness that we see practiced in the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus continues to hammer away at those matters of the heart, that superficial righteousness that he addressed in chapter 5 going, well, okay, adultery has to go much deeper than the physical act of adultery. It gets to the heart of lust. Murder, we have to get to the heart of anger. When we get to uh, divorce and oaths, we have to get to the matter of what does it mean to keep our word at all times, or in loving our neighbor as ourselves, it includes what does it mean to love our enemies as well as our friends and those who we like. See, Jesus is very practical in the sermon as he continues to address what does your heart look like? What does the heart of the citizen of heaven look like? in this day and age. And here Jesus calls us to examine our own heart when it comes to a very basic facet of Christian discipleship, giving to those in need through uh, the act of giving alms or uh, uh, the, the collection plate for the church. It's the context here. I'd like us to break up this passage into three distinct points. First, I'd like us to consider the matter of how not to give You'll see that in verses 1 and 2. And then secondly, I'd like us to consider the matter of how to give. You'll see that in verses 3 and 4. And then finally, I'd like us to consider the matter of reward. 
As we see that laced throughout this entire passage, Jesus keeps driving that particular point back home. What does the reward have to do with any of this? Well, first, how not to give. You know, when I was uh, a high school teacher, one of the things I had to do that I was required to do every year, actually every semester, was to instruct the ninth and 10th grade students of mine how to write a cogent research paper. And that required, among many things, having set aside a particular workshop days where we would teach students how to write a thesis statement, how to write and organize and structure a research paper. Not the most exciting or exhilarating thing. I didn't wake up one day and say, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to devote my life to teaching ninth graders how to write uh, and organize logical uh, papers. And yet, this is such an important facet because, you know, you can have all the material you want in the world, but if it's not shaped or fashioned, you're not going to convince anybody of what it is you're trying to argue. There's a, a certain movement and flow. You know, James you know, teaches at uh, the university, teaches rhetoric and, and uh, public speaking, and, and that is so foundational uh, to uh, these basic components on uh, uh, not just public communication, but even in our daily interactions. How is it that you uh, make an argument of something? And so what I'd have to do with the kids is much like Vince Lombardi the first day of spring training every year. Uh, Gentlemen, this is a football. Even though he had you know, won so many awards it, 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 at the beginning of every new football season, it always began the same. It's always back to the basics. When we teach the kids, all right, this is what you do when you write. It might look wooden. But you've got to learn the basics before you can get on to uh, the, the, the kind of the stylistic um, things that make a, a paper sound much better than you're going to write it as a ninth grader. Um, you've got your thesis statement, and then you've got your three supporting points. Something real simplistic about it, something very simple about it, but there's a certain organization and flow of thought that becomes very helpful. And what I'd like you to see here is that this is what Jesus is doing here in the first 18 verses of this passage. Again, we're not covering the first 18 verses today, but it might be helpful just to see the forest for just a brief moment. I'd like you to consider verse 1 here in chapter 6 as Jesus' thesis statement. His main argument, beware of practicing your righteousness before others. Here, Jesus gets eminently practical. His concern in chapter 5 was the righteousness that God requires, that righteousness that extends to the heart. But now the question is, what does that righteousness look like now lived out on the ground? What does that righteousness look like in the day-to-day? And Jesus does not get exhaustive here, but rather he gives three sample uh, facets of the Christian life that are necessary and foundational to the Christian life. If you look at verses 1 to 4, he considers the matter of giving. In verses 5 to 15, he considers the matter of prayer. And in verses 16 to 18, he considers the matter of fasting. And in each of these three sections, he begins, Do not practice that righteousness like the hypocrites, but rather you are to do this. So verse 1 is that thesis statement. And then the next three sections of this passage focus on very particular aspects, very specific examples on how not to practice your righteousness before men. This morning, we're focusing on the matter of giving. I'm letting you know we're probably going to spend the next 12 weeks or so uh, in this broader unit of the first 18 verses, because then Jesus gets very uh, detailed on how it is that we are to pray, and then he focuses on fasting as well. But this morning, what 
we consider what does that lived out righteousness look like on the ground when it comes to the question of giving alms, of giving uh, to the collection plate in the church. Uh, first, I'd like us to notice what Jesus says here. Notice that he does not say if you give. Rather, he says when you give. In other words, there's a certain assumption that our Savior has that foundational to the Christian life is that we will give to support the need of those around us. Again, let me just clarify because this church operates very differently than other churches you might see on um, TV or on a live stream. Uh, I have no say-so over the collection plate. This is not going to line my own pockets and buy me a new plane or Ferrari or anything like that. There are the basic needs that um, the, the, the offering takes to, to keep the lights on and to care for the diaconal needs of the people here and to help pay for, of course, my basic salary, which y'all vote on and, and, and things like that. So this is very different from other types of church models uh, where I'm simply trying, I'm not trying to preach for you to give more so that somehow I get a raise. That's not what this is about. What Jesus is saying here is that the giving, the concern is giving for the needs of the poor. And that's, when Je- that's why Jesus says, when you give, not if you give, but when. Right? If G- what we see is that Jesus' beef with the Pharisees is not over this matter. Both Jesus and the Pharisees agree on this particular point of what it looks like to practice one's righteousness. Even the hypocrites knew that they were supposed to give. Rather, Jesus' concern is over the motive and the manner of one's giving, and it and elicits a couple diagnostic questions that we have for ourselves as we begin to shine the spotlight of God's Word on our heart to see what does it look like to be a disciple of Christ. The first question we'd, ha- of course, have to ask is, are we giving? But then, further, how are you giving? And finally, why are you giving? And here our Savior marks out the Pharisees as a negative example. Do not be like them. He's very clear. He calls them hypocrites, right? In the ancient world, a hypocrite was the term for an actor, for the, for the mask that he put on. It was a term for a man who put on a show. It was a term for a man who put on a mask. It was a personae, a role that the individual adopted, something that was not true to their true identity. That's what Jesus is saying here about the Pharisees. They look religious, but it's a theatrical religion. They're simply putting on a show. They're doing this to be seen by men. They're doing it to gain the approval of men. Here are men who are self-congratulatory in the things that they do. If we were to use modern parlance, they, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were no stranger to the humble brag. You've seen it in the media. Somebody hosts a press conference or posts something on social media where they take a, a, a selfie of a picture of themselves, and they go, oh, so humbled to be feeding all these poor here on Thanksgiving. Like my post for more comment. Where the concern is not on the needs of the poor, the concern is shining the spotlight on oneself. To make oneself known. It comes off as humble in the eyes of many, but Jesus says this is sheer hypocrisy. It is anything but humble. It's just another shameless act of self-promotion where the spotlight is shined on one's own character, and the world thinks that this is virtuous. Why is it that so many people are obsessed with reading about the charitable givings and acts of philanthropists? Why is it that so many philanthropists are concerned with making their name known for how much they give? 
Jesus says here that that is not true philanthropy. Philanthropy, Greek word simply meaning a love for men. Is it a genuine love or is it simply a role and a mask that one is wearing? And here Jesus begins to unmask the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Jesus begins to get very practical. In essence, he quite literally says, stop tooting your own horn. That's the very thing that the Pharisees would do in their own day. You see, in Jesus' day, the custom was that when one entered the synagogue, they would have a collection plate, much like we have our collection box in the back, but their collection box looked like and was shaped like a trumpet. And of course, they didn't have dollar bills or checks like we sign and, and drop off. They had coins. And you think about the different sizes and weights of coins where um, the, uh, the, 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 the pennies would weigh less than the, the more expensive coins. And so when you dropped your coin in the coffer, you could hear the clinging of, the, uh, of the, the coins and you could, in essence, tell how much a person was giving, especially if you wanted to throw those coins in just a little bit harder. And so tossing your money into the offering box was known as sounding the trumpet. And here, one could see how easy it would be without even having to raise your voice to make it known to those nearby how generous your giving really was. You think of the widow who could only give two mites versus somebody who is able to give hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars, in dollar coins or quarters or whatever the ancient equivalent of the day was. But think of what that does. Where now the attention, what's the purpose of the offering plate? The purpose is to provide for the needs of the poor. And yet now here is somebody who takes that and they're able to twist it. And now that they turn it on themselves. I think we've all witnessed this before. Whenever a, a tragedy strikes the nation, you think of uh, 9-11 or any number of hurricanes or mass shootings uh, where lives are lost or homes are lost or people are left without a, a work or uh, a loved, they're bereaved of loved ones. And what it, what it is that happens? You find almost without fail, some Hollywood superstar wants to start a telethon for the next 24 hours. And hey, great, it's good if you want to give money to, to those things, I guess. What's so interesting is that during those telethons, you'll have these, these guys, let's say the, the, the tragedy happens on the East Coast, you have all these guys on the West Coast going, well, look at, look at me, look how much I'm giving. Look at all the things that we're doing. They have now taken a tragedy and somehow they've turned and twisted it and made it all about themselves. How egotistical. This is the very thing that Jesus is condemning. The actor on the stage has taken a bona fide tragedy and now has made it all about himself, even though he was not the victim of any such thing. Jesus says that this is hypocrisy. It is a feigned philanthropy, not a true or genuine love for man. And so Jesus says that those who have done this have received their reward in full. They have, as it were, cashed in their chips early. Jesus says, you want notoriety for what you've done? Fine, you can have it now. But guess what's going to happen on the last day? Nobody's going to care because you've already received your reward in full. You want to seek the praise of men? Is that why you're doing this? Fine, you get the praise of men now. But on the last day when what really matters comes to the foreground... You're, you're going to be left bankrupt. Nobody's going to remember it. 
not even as it were God Himself. Not as though God ever forgets. But here God would say it was meaningless. At the end of this sermon, Jesus will bring that, make that even more patently clear on the last day. So many people are going to say, Lord, Lord, look at all the great things that we, do, we have done in your name. And Jesus says, who are you? I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity and lawlessness. And there seems to be a genuine response of surprise. How frightening. So many people thinking that they're doing acts of genuine righteousness and piety in this life, and turns out they've only been making it all about themselves. Jesus says, do not be like these men. You want to be rewarded for your righteousness now? First, let me remind you how shallow your own righteousness really is. You can have it all now, but you won't see a dime at the final judgment. You see, Jesus is now beginning to hold up before each of us a mirror and begins to tell us that the manner of our giving, how ostentatious our giving is, how gaudy our, is, our, our giving is, it is a mirror that reflects the motive of our own hearts. If you're giving ostentatiously, clearly your motive is that you would receive praise from men and not from God. Jesus says, do not give like this. Give, certainly give. Again, the assumption is that there will be giving according to one's capacities and abilities. And yet Jesus says, when you do give, do not toot your own horn, do not sound the trumpet. And when you give, do not do so in order to be noticed. Of course, that raises the question then to riff off the words of the late Francis Schaeffer, how then should we give? How should a righteous heart act? And so after telling us what not to do, Jesus instructs us on how we should do these things. You see that here in verses 3 and 4, one characteristic feature that illustrates righteous giving. That characteristic is this, it is not how much you give, but rather the manner in which you give it. Certainly, I should qualify by saying I'm not telling you to give as little as possible. You know, all right, I only gave $3 today. I could give that with a smile on my face. You want me to give cheerfully? I'll give a little with a big smile. That's, that's not Jesus' point. You think of the story of the widow's mite later on in this gospel. The woman who was only able to give two copper pennies, and yet Jesus points her out and says she has given much more than the richest men in the synagogue in the city. Because she gave out of her poverty, not out of her abundance. See, one of the things that we see emphasized in the New Testament is that uh, our Savior is not looking for a, a certain amount. You must give X amount to enter the kingdom of heaven. This isn't like a spiritual roller coaster ride. Rather, the concern is with the attitude of the heart in the matter and manner of giving. Paul makes this clear likewise in 2 Corinthians. That's why I had it read earlier. And Paul's missionary endeavors uh, as the sending body sends him on his way to plant new churches. A massive famine has plagued the city of Jerusalem and has left so many Christians hungry and poor. 
And so when you read Galatians chapter 2, Romans chapter 15 and 16, and 2 Corinthians 1 to 9, as well as the book of Acts, you find that Paul is tasked with, as for every church that he goes and plants, he is designated with a fundraising campaign to raise up funds that money might be sent and given to the poor in Jerusalem. Of course, this is the ancient world. They're not able to wire their funds. They're not able to write a check. They're depositing coins, and somebody's going to have to take that money and deliver it and bring it from Corinth, Macedonia, Rome, wherever, and bring it all the way to Jerusalem. So the church ends up having to elect trusted men, deacons, who will take those funds, who will be able to keep those funds from being stolen on the road by bandits and highwaymen, and bringing it with Paul to the church in Jerusalem. So it is a year-long campaign that Paul's going about. So he begins talking about this fundraising event, as it were, at the end of 1 Corinthians, and then he begins writing about it once more in 2 Corinthians to remind them that it is the church's task not only to give locally, but to give globally when it concerns the care and relief of those within the household of God. This is a concern for those within the context of the church to ensure that one's brothers and sisters in Christ are able to have basic food on the table. And yet the concern here is not about turning this into making it about yourself. Paul says when you give, this is, this is a give to care for those who are truly in need, and we need to give cheerfully. And he says to them, he says, I'm not giving this, uh, it's not a tax or an exaction. I'm encouraging you to examine your own heart to give according to your own means, whatever it is that you can afford. But however it is that you can afford, he says, I want you to give cheerfully because that's the thing that the Lord is looking for. God loves a cheerful giver. What we see is what Jesus is saying here is that this is, in one sense, a complimentary passage. We need to remember that when we read the counsel of God and hear the counsel of God, we need to hear the whole counsel of God and to recognize that Scripture never contradicts itself. So Paul is giving instruction in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It complements quite well the instructions that our Lord is giving here in Matthew chapter 6. And so what Jesus is saying here is that here is a rule. And the expectation for giving, again, just like with Paul, Jesus is, his focus is not on how much you are to give. Rather, his focus is on how you are to give. And the rule he gives is this, that whatever you do give, give secretly. Don't bandy it about. Don't post your giving on Facebook or social media. Truly humbled to give a third of my earnings this quarter to the church. Truly humbled that the church is naming the library after me. You've got your reward now. That's not the goal. No, when you give, this is what you must do. That's what Jesus says. Don't tell people about it. Because this is not about you. One of the things that we find when we read the Scriptures is that the nature and character of love is that love forgets itself. Love does not think about itself. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? Love does not boast. The concern for love is not to shine the floodlight on one's own ability to love. The concern of love is the object of love's affections. To make sure that the beloved has all that he or she truly needs, not uh, that the one giving can feel better about himself. 
True charity is about seeing the needs of those who are in need. And it puts the spotlight properly where it belongs to make sure that those who are without food are able to eat. And so Jesus says, this is what true righteousness looks like. This is the righteousness. This is the kind of righteousness that God requires. A giving that is self-forgetful. A giving that takes no concern to one's own notoriety, to one's own prestige, to one's own good name. Jesus says, as it were, your left hand should not even, be, should not even know what your right hand is doing, so to speak. That's how we are to give. That is the attitude of our heart that our Savior calls upon us in terms of our giving and how we give and our motivation for giving. Not to seek the, 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 the pleasure and praise of men, but to seek the commendation of our Father. You see, Jesus' concern here in chapter 6 continues what His primary concern was in chapter 5. The concern is the status and disposition of the heart. How God requires a righteousness that is not superficial. How God demands a righteousness that is not theatrical. How God longs for a righteousness that runs deep into the very depths of the heart. What God demands is a righteousness that is genuine, whose righteous deeds flow from the heart. And such a heart can only come about by the work of the Spirit in our lives. It's the reason why Christ came. It is the reason why He died. That He might bear our sin, that He might rise and ascend to the heavenly throne and pour out His Spirit, that the Spirit of God might fall and sinful man might not be consumed in God's wrath. Why is it that the fire falls on the saints at Pentecost and they are not consumed? It demonstrates that Christ Himself has undergone the fires of judgment on our behalf, and now the Holy God truly can dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Now the Spirit can work in our hearts to make our hearts new, to raise uh, those dead bones to life, that we might walk in His ways, that God might take His law, which was once written on tablets of stone, and now He engraves His law not on tablets of stone, but on, 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 on human flesh, on, on the human heart where He enables us to walk in His ways, even though it's a lifelong process, like a, like a child learning to ride his bike. He's not going to become a motocross superstar overnight. This is a process. And yet, in the midst of all this, what I think is the most striking feature of this passage, striking as all of these things are, is Jesus' repeated emphasis on the nature of our reward. Notice the structure that we have to this particular passage. That's why I spent quite a bit of time earlier showing that verses 1 to 18 are part of an overall structure of Jesus' argument. If verse 1 is our overarching thesis statement, do not practice your righteousness before men as the hypocrites do. And if verse 2 tells us what not to do, and verses 3 and 4 instructs us in our Christian duties, notice how each of these three sections end. Verse 1, how does it end? discussion of reward. Verse 2, how does it end? Discussion of reward. Verse 4, how does it end? Discussion of reward. This is the accent that our Savior continually keeps coming back to. It is the rhythm to His speech. And yet it seems so counterintuitive to everything we've heard so far, doesn't it? 
You think, Pastor, doesn't Scripture tell us elsewhere that entrance into Christ's kingdom is not based on merit, but on, but on a righteousness that is received through faith alone? So how can Jesus be talking about a reward? Doesn't this run contrary to grace? Why is it that Jesus speaks so emphatically here of reward if our salvation is solely upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think the first thing we should notice is what Jesus is saying here. Notice how he is teasing out the same thing from three different vantage points. Verse 1, if you practice your righteousness to be seen by men, you will not receive your reward from your heavenly Father. Verse 2, if you practice this righteous act of almsgiving in order to be seen by men, you will have your reward now in full. And then verse 4, if you practice the righteous act of almsgiving secretly in order to be seen by God, then God will reward you future tense, not today, but on the last day. See, Jesus is giving kind of a, there's kind of a progression and advancement to the very things that he is saying here. And yet in each of these, notice how the reality of the reward is tethered to the person whose praise we seek the most. What is it that motivates you to give and how you give? Is it for the prospect of human praise and adoration? Or is it to seek the divine approbation? The hope to hear one day your Father in heaven say, well done, my boy. See, this is what Jesus lays out before us. And yet within that layout, the question of reward is clear. That the, the, what is the reward? The reward is praise. That's the reward that Jesus has in mind. Whose praise are you seeking? The praise of men? Or the praise of your Father? And yet that language of reward still sounds kind of... Does, doesn't that run contrary to, the, to grace? Well, no, not properly understood. I want to consider two different scenarios. Let's say you're a hotshot business executive on Wall Street, and you have a massive account uh, that hangs in the balance that is contingent upon this presentation that you're set to give Monday morning. And so you spend all weekend laboring over it, sweating over it, because you know if you fail, your boss is going to be thoroughly displeased with you. If you lose this account, you will lose your job. You will lose your wages. You will lose your earnings. You will lose that bonus. You will lose that reward. In one sense, it's perfectly fine to think that way. Why? Because for that businessman, the basis of his relationship to his boss is a transactional relationship. It is based off of how well he performs in his duties. You earn your keep, you keep your earnings. That's, that is what the contract for a, a business model is. That's just the nature of the beast. You are here to earn your wages. And yet, there's a different type of reward for a different situation. I need to consider this second scenario. You've got a 10-year-old boy who knows that his father has had a long week working, and he's tired. And the boy wants to please his father, and so he wakes up early 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning, 
and he pulls the mower out of the shed. He begins to mow the lawn. The father is awakened to the sound of a loud crash. Fifteen minutes later, he looks outside and the lines to the lawn, to the lawn are all zigzagged. And in one sense, the lawn work looks worse off than it did before. And he looks off in the distance and he sees the boy has run over uh, the, uh, you know, a, a, a protruded root and has now bent the crankshaft and now has broken this $500 lawnmower that needs repairing. And the boy is in tears because he thinks his father is going to be ashamed of him, that his father might disown him. And yet what does the father do when he sees and knows the motive of, of what his son was trying to do? He says, oh, good job, buddy. You, you tried. Let's work on it again. Please don't mow the lawn. <laughs> you know, without us you know, working on some of these things first. But the father still smiles on his son, and he's happy with his son, even though his son's works are imperfect. Why is that? Because the basis of that relationship between the father and the son is much different than the basis of the relationship between the boss and the manager and his employee. It's based on something more solid, more lasting than the transactional relationships of the business world. It's based off the family tie of the father saying, I am your father and you are my son. And notice what Jesus continues to drive home in each of these three cases that he talks about the nature of reward. He does not say that your manager in heaven who sees will reward you according to your wages. No, he says your father in heaven who sees. That's the basis of the reward. Jesus is looking at the, 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 the motive of the heart in response to the work of grace that has already been given into the heart, as God has already called us and made us his own, as our Father has been pleased in his mercy to adopt us as sons and daughters of the Most High by grace, though we were once children of nature, children of wrath by nature. Jesus is not telling us that we are to give alms in order to earn our way into heaven. Rather, the assumed relationship is that we have an already established loving bond with our Father in heaven who has already redeemed us, who is calling us to act like this, that we might do the things to please our Father simply because He is our Father in heaven. In one sense, he's simply calling us to, for us to do what our Savior has done for us. As we've already heard, that though Christ was rich beyond all splendor, for love's sake he became poor, that out of his poverty we might become rich. And now he calls us to follow and model that same act of grace, that same act of charity in giving to others, not for the praise of men. Who cares what the praise of men is? But we do this, these things for an audience of one. We do these things for the Lord, for our Father in heaven who sees in secret. And he who sees these things now in secret will reward us openly on the last day when we stand before him and he looks at us as he sees us robed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that is real, fully imputed, but also a righteousness that has been infused and imparted by the work of the Spirit that is spilled over into love for our neighbor and he sees what we've done even in the midst of our imperfections and our failings and our weaknesses. And he smiles upon us and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let us pray. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you would remind us of the love that you have for us as our Heavenly Father. Teach us to seek your approval, not to establish our relationship with you, because you already approve of us in Christ. But we pray that we would seek your delight because you are our Father, and that you would delight in the things that we do and how we seek to love others, particularly those in need. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.